to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. In the wellness space, I feel like a lot of people really overlook mindfulness, and it's a term that's just tossed around, and a lot of people don't even really know what that means, and they say, yes, I'm mindful, but they don't actually put that into practice in their lives, and mindfulness practices are so incredibly powerful, and if you're somebody who is looking to increase your focus and concentration during the day, if you are looking to relieve any anxiety or feelings of overwhelm, become more efficient and productive, and really just optimize your brain and overall well-being, then today's episode is something that you are really going to want to tune into. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Kristen Race, who is a neuroscientist and mindfulness expert, and she is the author of Mindful Parenting, the founder of Mindful Life, and the head of mindfulness at Silvasa. She's been featured in the New York Times, NPR, and CNN. She has given some incredible TED Talks, and she's trained over 50,000 leaders in her methods throughout the world. She has trained many teachers, parents, medical professionals, and people in the workplace. And what I love about Dr. Kristen Race is that she really breaks down topics in neuroscience to a level that's incredibly easy to understand, no matter who you are. And I love the work that she is doing in the workplace and throughout the education system to really bring the power of mindfulness to so many different people who might not even realize the potential benefits. So if you have been wanting to tap into the power of your breath, the power of your mind, enhance your cognition, enhance your productivity, calm yourself down and use the free tool that is your breath and mindfulness to do so, then this episode is for you. The techniques she explains in this show will truly help anyone. And there's small changes, small things you can add into your day that will make the world of a difference. Before I hop into today's show, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, which is one of my favorite companies, Blue Blocks. I'm wearing my blue light blocking glasses right now because the sun has gone down. So I have my Sleep Plus lenses on because if you're like me and need to be on a screen past the time when the sun goes down, then you're definitely going to want to be wearing your blue light blocking glasses to optimize your sleep and make sure your circadian rhythm is on track as it can be. Wearing blue blockers can obviously help with your sleep, but also impact your energy levels, boost your mood, balance out your hormones, and regulate your appetite. I wear blue blocks, blue light blocking glasses, because I've tried so many different brands out there and used to wear orange glasses, but 
Then I found blue blocks and learned more about the science behind this. And you really want to make sure you are blocking the full blue and green spectrum. Most glasses out there are only blocking part of that spectrum. And blue blocks is the only company that is 100% backed by the science and tested to make sure they are blocking that full spectrum. So I wear the sleep plus red lenses in the evening. My favorite frames are the Parker style. And then during the day, I wear the blue light clear lens, which is best for people who work in more natural lighting during the day. But if you struggle with seasonal depression or you work under harsher artificial lighting, like in an office, then I would recommend the summer glow yellow lens. And if your blinds don't block out all the light, despite being labeled 100% light blocking, then you should definitely get the Remedy sleep mask because this has saved me. This is a 100% light blocking sleep mask that really helps improve your REM and deep sleep. And my sleep is so important to me so that I can be as productive as possible. And that's why I cannot live without my blue blockers on evenings when I forget them. I feel so tired the next day. I get not a very good night's sleep and they make a huge difference. They have a ton of different frames to pick from. You can also send in your own frames and they have a custom-made prescription service for you if you do wear prescription glasses. And I love that the company donates a pair of reading glasses for every pair of blue blocks that they sell. So if you want to get your hands on the best blue light blocking glasses out there, then just head on over to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, will get you 15% off. Again, that's spelled blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, will get you 15% off. So that will help to biohack your sleep and your productivity efficiency and just your overall functioning during the day. And now we're going to dive into some really helpful, simple techniques you can use every day to practice mindfulness and boost your brain, balance out your mood, stay focused and clear throughout the day, all with the power of your breath. So let's go ahead and hop into this interview with Dr. Kristen Race. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. And I, like I just told you off air, I have been so excited to chat with you. I have so many questions. I love getting into brain health and mindfulness. But for anyone who's not familiar with you, can you just start off by telling my audience a little bit about you and what you do? Sure. So my name is Kristen Race. Um, my background, I have a doctorate in psychology with an emphasis in neuroscience. And I founded a company called Mindful Life about 12 years ago. And it's all about building resilience to modern day stressors using brain based mindfulness practices. So over the course of my career, I've worked with everyone. I actually started working in schools and working with children that evolved into working with teachers around their self-care um, that grew into working with parents and the family system. I wrote a book called Mindful Parenting. I gave a couple of TED Talks around my work, and then my work has expanded to corporations. Uh, I'm now the head of mindfulness for Solvasa, which is an integrative beauty line. And one of my most recent projects is a group um, called a Moxie Tribe, which is an online coaching community that supports working moms. So it's gone in a lot of different directions, but all really around the topics of neuroscience, 
mindfulness and small things that we can integrate into our day that can really benefit our lives in positive ways. Yeah, you've got a lot going on. I'm sure it keeps you busy. Um, I'm curious what got you interested in neuroscience to begin with? Sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I I just have always been fascinated about the way our brains work. And when I got into it, the the research around the impact on the brain of, of practices like meditation and yoga was fairly new. And I was just became really curious about how these practices that had been around for thousands of years um, there must be a reason why they've been around for thousands of years. And this new research in the brain area was was really starting to illuminate why these practices were so beneficial, exactly what they were doing on a physiological level, which for me reduced a lot of my skepticism around those kind of practices. And that is really what launched my interest in the neuroscience piece of behavior, of resilience, and how we can use uh, mindfulness practices to enhance those things. Yeah, so I think the term mindfulness is thrown around a lot, but what does that really mean? Yeah, that's an excellent question because I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, for me, mindfulness is is being aware of the present moment, um, and it, it kind of integrates into our life in different ways. There's the practice of mindfulness, um, which is where the meditation piece comes in, and that's where it's like a skill that you are trying to develop, and you do these mindfulness practices to get better at that skill. And then there's also a mindful approach to your life, which is just being able to be in the moment um, throughout your day, in your day-to-day life, to stay grounded, to stay present, to not get too caught up in the future or the past. And I think um, the, the ability to be mindful is enhanced as we engage in mindfulness practices. So it's similar to exercise. The more you practice, the stronger you get. And the more you practice mindfulness, the stronger the skill or the the mindful approach to your life gets as well. Yeah. And why do you think that that skill is so difficult for people now? I feel like we've really lost touch with that skill. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I think there's a reason why um, this is such a pop term these days. And the reason is because we need it so desperately. And if you look at, um, you know, for, I I don't know you, but I I sense I'm a good bit older than you, but so I'm dating myself. I'm almost 50 years old. And when I was growing up, uh, I went to school, I came home, I had a home life. My dad went to work, he came home, he ate dinner, and then the rest of his evening was really about relaxation and family time. And today, life is so much different, both for adults and for kids. Um, You know, we're faced with 24-7 accessibility, uh, constant pings and dings from our emails, from our texts, from our social media notifications. There's no built-in downtime or restore time in our day like there was a generation ago. And that has a significant impact on our brains and um, in many ways triggers constant stress on our brains. 
So what mindfulness does is it helps us build resilience to all of these things that we have constantly coming at us, all of these little stressors, our busy schedules, our hectic lives, our constant demands on our time, our distractions. We're able to be um, to build resilience to those things in a way that that can help us, you know, be present and engaged during this crazy time. So I, I think the reason why it's so relevant right now is because life is just different than it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and our brains need some tools um, to help to, to help manage all of that. Yeah, I think everyone definitely needs to practice that muscle. I think especially the younger generations, because it's like they're growing up with all of this stimulation. Constant stimulation. Absolutely. So you mentioned before that something that kind of sold you on these mindfulness practices was learning about the neuroscience aspect of things. So would you be able to explain a little bit more about like what's going on in the brain with, with when we engage in mindfulness practices? Sure, absolutely. So if you think, um, speaking very basically in terms of our brains, there's two main areas that are impacted, um, both by stress and by mindfulness. And the first part of our brain that's impacted is our prefrontal cortex. So this is the part of our brain right behind our forehead. It's from an evolutionary perspective. It's the newest part of the human brain. And that part of our brain is responsible for skills like attention, like impulse control, problem solving, decision making, forward thinking. It's the rational part of our brain. And and it allows us to think clearly, to work productively, and to engage authentically with the people around us. So it's a really important part of our brain. The other part of our brain that's involved is our limbic system, and specifically the amygdala, which is um, the basically the survival mechanisms in our brain. So when you hear the fight, flight, or freeze response, that's all linked into our limbic system and the amygdala. And what happens in our modern lives is the all of the little stressors, um, all of the distractions um, from our modern technology, all of these things stimulate the alarm systems in our brain. Our, our brain doesn't distinguish between uh, a life-threatening circumstance and a modern-day annoyance. So, so we interpret you know, being chased by a saber-toothed tiger in the same way we interpret a long line at the Starbucks drive-thru. So because of that, we're constantly stimulating these survival mechanisms in our brains. And when those mechanisms are stimulated, our prefrontal cortex essentially shuts down. That's part of the stress response. So we end up operating from this impulsive, reactive, irritable, anxiety-provoking part of our brain, rather than responding from the more thoughtful, problem-solving, attentive, aware part of our brain. So what mindfulness does is it strengthens our prefrontal cortex. So as we practice a meditation, um, you know, a, a breathing meditation or even a um, 
you know, like a brief three taking three breaths when you find yourself in a difficult situation, we're what we're doing is we're stimulating our prefrontal cortex. We're bringing that part of our brain back online so that we can respond to situations thoughtfully using that part of our brain rather than just reacting impulsively. So you can see how in our modern lives, it's very easy to have, you know, eight different things go wrong, just getting out of the house in the morning, you know, your kids wake up late, somebody forgot their homework, you get a text that a coworker is sick and isn't going to make it, uh, you're low on gas, there's traffic, all of these, all of those things are stimulating those alarm mechanisms in our brain. And it's easy to walk into work at eight o'clock in the morning and our prefrontal cortex is, is not functioning at all. So somehow we got to bring that part of our brain back online so that we can work productively, we can have authentic relationships, we can solve problems, we can be productive in our day. And that's where mindfulness comes in is helping us to do all of those things. Okay, so basically... In the moment, you can use that mindfulness practice to to turn your prefrontal cortex back on, right? To activate it? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, certainly I talk about kind of formal and informal practices. Mm-hmm. So a formal practice is a daily meditation. But there are also things you can do in the moment um, when you find yourself triggered, when you find that alarm going off to bring your prefrontal cortex back online. So uh, an example I like to use is a practice I call PBR. Um, P as in Paul, B as in boy, R as in uh, Rebecca. And the way it works is when you notice you're triggered, um, when you notice kind of that alarm is going off, something is stressing you out, say you open your inbox and you get an email from your boss that has something that's really triggering you, you simply pause you take a, a deep breath or maybe two. And the reason we do this is because when we're stressed, we only breathe in the top quarter of our lungs. So by taking one or two deep breaths, we bring our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system back into balance. That signals our prefrontal cortex that it's okay to come back online. So you take a deep breath or two, and then the, the R stands for respond with intention. So you can then choose a response that can lead to the most positive outcome rather than just reacting in a way that could make everything worse. So PBR is a practice that I use dozens of times a day. And, um, you know, I use it when reacting to teenage children. I use it when something comes across my inbox or my text or a situation with my husband or a long line in the grocery store. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. It's just a way to take just a, a second to choose a response rather than just react. And it can be incredibly powerful. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it seems so like too simple, you know, yeah. just like breathe. But I, I was just talking to someone yesterday about this. She's, you know, struggling with stress. She's a client, and I asked her, "Do you breathe during the day?" Yeah, <laughs> and she was like, she stopped, and she was like, "I mean, I sigh a lot, so maybe not." And I and I said, "Let's just." pay attention and see if you breathe during the day because I know for myself 
for so long, you know, I felt so caught in fight or flight all the time. And then I noticed like, I don't breathe. I hold my breath for so long, constantly all day long. Of course, I'm going to feel stressed out. Yeah, and most of us do. So when we have a um, a breathing practice uh, that we practice daily, for example, I first thing in the morning as my coffee brews, I spend three to five minutes paying attention to my breathing. And because of that, my brain creates a habit of paying attention to my breathing. And it also increases my awareness. So I'm much more aware when I'm triggered And I can feel it happening in my body as it occurs because I've done this breathing practice to increase my awareness. And that allows me to be, uh, I'm much more able to use those PBRs when I need them um, because of that increased awareness. And I compare it to in my book, Mindful Parenting, I talk about, you know, if you have two four-year-olds And they are having a temper tantrum in the grocery store because mom doesn't want to buy the fruit roll-ups or whatever that they want. And you tell them to take a deep breath to calm down. The four-year-old who has a practices breathing in preschool every day will be able to do that. The four-year-old who has never practiced breathing in their life will not be able to do that and will likely scream louder. And so that's where the formal practice comes in. It works for the same for adults. When you become used to um, paying attention to your breathing throughout the day, having a formal practice, you're much more likely to use that PBR in those situations where you need it. Um, and we see this over and over again in our in our schools programs that classrooms where kids are learning this and they're practicing this on a daily basis they're much more able to to use these practices when they really need them. And it works the same for adults. Okay. So can we talk more about what a formal mindfulness practice would look like and how people get started with that? Sure. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, some people get really intimidated by the thought of meditating. And they'll say, Oh, my gosh, I, I couldn't my mind is way too busy for that. I could never clear my mind. And the first thing I'll say is it's not about clearing your mind at all. That's um, a busy mind is part of the human condition. We all have it. It's about picking a point of focus and holding your attention there. Noticing when your mind wanders off, which it will again and again and again, and coming back to that point of focus. So as an example, if your point of focus is your breath, um, you know, maybe it's where you feel your breath in your belly or your, um, your nose or your chest, that's your point of focus. That's kind of your anchor. So you bring your awareness to each inhalation and exhalation. And then when your mind wanders to your to-do list or your grocery list or whatever it might wander to, you simply notice that it's wandered and you come back to the next breath. And each time you come back, you strengthen the neural pathways in your prefrontal cortex. It's like doing reps in a gym. The more your mind wanders and the more you bring it back, the stronger those neural pathways become. So you can do this, you know, I, I, I am a big believer that three to five minutes of doing this in the morning is huge, will make a significant difference in your day and in your weeks and in your life. 
but I notice a huge difference when my practice is on and I'm in my routine and I'm practicing daily. I'm uh, you know, I'm more productive. I'm more patient with my kids. I am happier. I feel better about myself. But I do go through times when I fall out of my routine and I'm not practicing as consistently. And I notice I'm consistent. I'm considerably uh, not as nice a person to be around. I'm more difficult with my husband. I have less patience for my kids. I feel more scattered. I feel more overwhelmed. So it's a really powerful practice, and you can introduce it in really simple ways. Yeah, I like that you make that so approachable because I just hear over and over again people saying, I can't meditate, I can't slow down, I don't have time, and it's like, you have three minutes, you know? Right, and and the payoff, the return on your investment in that time is huge in terms of your productivity and your efficiency because you proceed through your day in a much more clear, grounded, efficient, productive way. And instead of constantly being lost in thoughts of overwhelm and anxiety and worry and ruminations, which take up a ton of time. So I say, you know, that five minutes you spend breathing in the morning, you'll get a huge return on uh, later in the day. Yeah, those thoughts do take up a lot of time. I don't think people realize how much because it's not only the amount of time you're thinking about it, but also everything you, you everything else you do throughout the day is slower. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you think of even um, the way you respond to to your kids or to your partner that trigger a much more difficult conversation mm-hmm. because you're overwhelmed and scattered and anxious and and not being a very nice person versus being able to come to that conversation in a different way, you know, you can waste all kinds of of time and go through all kinds of unnecessary negative emotions because of it. Yeah. So I'm curious, do your kids have a formal mindfulness practice? I would not say, well, I'll say two things. Um, They were very resistant as you would think they would be to learning mindfulness practices from me. I think being their mom, that was hard, but luckily I had trained the schools that they went to. So they received mindfulness training as part of the school day, which was huge uh, because, you know, school days are consistent, they're routine. And by giving them those opportunities to practice every day at school was enormous. I will say we do a lot of things informally as a family. Um, And I notice them using mindfulness more and more as they've gotten older, especially into their teenage years. So some of the things we do informally is, is we'll practice gratitude at the dinner table. We'll, you know, we'll write down things we're grateful for on scratch paper, put it in a jar. And once a week, we'll pass the jar around and read what people have written. Um, we have very clear rules around technology, uh, uh, around the dinner table and around family times. When we go out to restaurants, it's a time to be engaged and present without phones, without use of those kinds of things. Um, and I notice a lot in their athletics. My, my son was a ski jumper for a long time and he would use breathing techniques at the top of a ski jump to calm himself down and to kind of get himself focused and in the zone. So I see it kind of creeping into their lives in different ways. 
um, you know, my daughter will use different uh, meditation apps and things like that to help her fall asleep at night. She has a hard time sleeping, um, which I think is pretty common for, for teenagers to get themselves to sleep at night. So it's, uh, you know, it's not something that you can mandate and say, you know, you have to sit down and meditate. But I think they learn a lot from watching us watching how we handle difficult situations and how we manage our emotions. And that definitely has a trickle down effect um, on them and on their stress level as well. Yeah. So do you teach specific breathing patterns? You know, sometimes I do. Um, so I would say in a, in an everyday mindfulness practice, I don't, I, I just use my natural rhythm of breath. Mm-hmm. And I set a timer. Well, I don't even set a timer. I set my coffee to brew and I hear my coffee dings when it's ready. So that's my t- that works as my timer. Um, but I also, you know, in coaching teams and in working with kids in different situations and adults in different situations, I will use different breathing patterns. So a couple examples of those. Um, and I actually write about these. I have a book called And She Said Breathe. And it's about a six-year-old girl who goes through her day and she has all these different things that happen to her. And she uses a different breathing technique for each of these things that happen um, based on whether she wants to calm down or whether she needs to wake up. Or So it's kind of a fun take on that. But some basic ones are if you feel like you need to calm down, if you're triggered, if you're angry, if you're overly stimulated, then you want to increase the time of your exhalation compared to your inhalation. So as an example, you might inhale to the count of four and exhale to the count of seven. And what that does is that brings our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system back into balance. So it, it triggers a relaxation response in our brain, which calms the stress response. So that's a good one if you're, you know, before giving a speech or a presentation, if you're really nervous about something, um, if you're really angry about something, uh, it's a great one that I teach kids for calming themselves, like in those tantrum states, we call it bear's breath, where you sit like a bear and you inhale to the count of three and exhale to the count of five. And then another practice that I use um, in terms of breathing is what's called box breathing. And they actually use this in the military. And it's inhale to the can. You can kind of picture a box as you're doing it. So if you picture inhaling to the count of four, hold for the count of four, exhale to the count of four, pause for the count of four, inhale four, hold four, exhale four, pause four. And so you kind of picture this box and I, that's an, a, a really great way to create a focused but alert state of mind. So before taking a test, that can be a great one before um, a game, before another one, before a presentation, or even before sitting down to do a project where you really need to be focused and engaged. Um, you know, when you're starting a meeting, if you're the head of a team for a team meeting, that can be a great one to do a few rounds of box breathing. So there, there are a lot of different ways to approach it. Yeah, I, I use both of those and they help me so much. Um, I, I'm curious, do you, have you had like a breathwork session before? Have you done that? 
I have done a lot of different kinds of breath work, you know, through um, lots of different pranayama and mm-hmm. through yoga classes and, um, you know, all kinds of different workshops throughout the years um, led by all different kinds of spiritual teachers. Yeah. And it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. You know, I always kind of come back to what's it doing inside my brain? You know, what, what, how is it impacting my nervous system? What parts of my brain are being stimulated? That's just kind of my brain geek gig on all of it. But, um, but it's, it's fascinating stuff to play around with for sure. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if you, if you know anything about the science behind like what's happening in that, like when I do a breathwork session, it's like, I'm in another world, you know, and my whole body you know, I'll get lobster hands and it's like my body, it's like this crazy release. And I'm like, what is happening in my brain yeah. that's, that's affecting the rest of my body this way? Well, certainly if, if sometimes you go into a breath session and they'll have you inhale and exhale really quickly, like do those types of breathing. Mm-hmm. And that actually triggers, um, a response in our nervous system, which is more similar to that fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm-hmm. So it's almost triggering a stress response. And the blood flow comes in uh, and focuses on our most essential organs, so in our trunk area and our brain. So that's part of the survival mechanism is that's where the blood goes the most. And because of that, the circulation in your hands and your feet lessens. So that can give you that feeling of kind of weightlessness of um, lobster hands, like you mentioned. So it kind of our brain is trying to interpret the different signals based on the breath. You know, it's actually the our physical body that tells our brain what's going on more than it is our brain telling our physical body what's going on in those situations. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It's crazy how much the breath can, can affect everything. Well, and I mean, going back to that, like the brain and body communicating, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of breathwork experts who promote this as just like, like the way of healing for people. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's super powerful through breathwork. Like you can heal physically yeah, absolutely. And there's a there's been some really interesting research in the mindfulness area around um I think it was in it was John Kabat-Zinn. He wrote about it. I don't know if he conducted the study, but about uh people with psoriasis and how they would go into these light boxes for treatment for their psoriasis. And one group was taught uh, mindfulness meditation and the other was not. And the group that was taught to do the mindfulness meditation, why they were in the light box healed, it was either two or three times faster than the group who was not taught that. So there's significant um, amount of building research on the, the benefits for our immune systems. Wow. That's so interesting. I love that they're actually doing research around that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's a yeah, it's a huge field. There's so many different ways, so many things to look at right now. It's almost um, it's almost overwhelming because there's so many different ways to go with it. But it's it's really exciting stuff. Yeah. So I'm I'm also curious more about what you were teaching schools, because I mean, I think this is really fascinating. I have a lot of teachers in my in my life and I hear about their days and their stress levels and the kids and I'm curious what what you teach um in schools and what kind of like practices they implement sure 
Sure. So we have a program. It's called the Mindful Life Schools Program. And it is actually what I started with, with my work. And it's a combination of uh, mindfulness practices, mindfulness practices and movement, um, kind of and introducing them to kids in developmentally appropriate ways. So it's not the same kind of meditation that I'm going to teach you uh, or I'm going to go into Coca-Cola and teach their employees, but it's, um, it's fun. It's kinesthetic. It involves a lot of games and essentially what um, the curriculum looks like is teachers spend five to 10 minutes a day. If they have it, um, uh, walking kids through these different practices of a listening practice, a movement practice, and a breathing practice, which those three combined take five minutes. Um, They do a little bit of teaching at the beginning of the week because there's different skills that we work on each week. And what happens is, um, you know, when we first did our research, what we saw for the kids was there was a significant increase in their attention Um, uh, improved emotional regulation and decreased behavioral referrals and problems in the classroom. And so that was amazing. And then the other really interesting thing that came out of the research is when teachers participated with the students. So rather than me coming in and teaching the class, but the teachers themselves did the practices with their classes they had a significant reduction in their own stress level. And you saw this trend throughout the school year, which is amazing because when you think for most teachers, their stress level ramps up as the school year goes on and we were actually seeing a decrease. And so there's a lot of amazing things about that. Um, Number one for for teachers trying to get moved through curriculum, what they reported was by spending that five minutes when the kids walked in in the morning, getting everybody's prefrontal cortex stimulated, they were able to move through material so much more quickly. They were not having to repeat as many things. They weren't having as many behavior problems. Um, it just it made their day so much easier by spending that time with the kids practicing in the morning. And then the other thing that happens is, you know, we have mirror neurons in our brain that reflect the emotions around us. So by having teachers that were less stressed, the kids themselves were less stressed. There was a huge reaction between the teacher's stress level and how the classroom felt and functioned. So incredible benefits in that work, both for teachers and for students. And we actually expanded the program um, once we found out about how it was impacting teachers so that about 50% of the program is focused on the work with the kids and 50% of it is on teacher self-care which is so important um, to build resilience for these teachers, to keep them in the classrooms, to um, reduce reduce turnover in these schools. So it's been a really incredible program to be a part of um, and to just watch how it, how it can transform classrooms and schools. Yeah, I mean, that's really powerful stuff, um, especially like with the educational impacts. And if you, I feel like if, if you start young, right, that would be so amazing yeah. to carry into high school, college. Right. And they pick it up like it's a language. You know, you teach these skills to four-year-olds and 
parents will report they come home and they'll, they'll find them, you know, sitting on the floor of their bedroom doing a breathing practice or they'll see them on the soccer field or the basketball court using these skills. And I think it is because of the way their brains absorb at that age. It is like they're learning a language. I wish it was something I had learned at that age. It's definitely much more difficult um, the older we get to try to integrate those things. But that's one one of the things I love about it for kids is how quickly they pick it up. And the other thing I love about it is is how desperately they need it right now in the world that they're growing up in and the things that they're exposed to um, from a media perspective, from a you know, a violence and exposure perspective, they need these skills in a, big, a huge way. Yeah. So how is it first explained to the kids? Like, how do they explain what they're doing? Yeah. So we start with um, the, you know, I start initially with a listening practice. And so what I would have them do is I would, I would come in and we use something called a tone bar, which is just, um, it's called a vibratone and you hit it and it rings for a really long period of time. Uh, and I'll start by asking kids, okay, you know, how many of you have been asked to pay attention at some point during the school year? And they all will raise their hand. And then I'll ask them, well, how many of you have been taught how to pay attention? And maybe a couple hands will go up. But we kind of expect them to pay attention, but we don't really teach them exactly how. And mindfulness teaches them how to pay attention. And so what we'll do with this tone bar is we'll have them, you know, sit in a mindful body, um, crisscross applesauce, you know, an upright spine. They can close their eyes if they want to, or they can just look down at their lap in front of them. And I ring the tone bar and I ask them to listen to the sound for as long as they can hear it. And when the sound stops for them, then they raise their hand. So this takes about 30 seconds um, of how long the tone bar rings. So they listen to the sound, listen, listen, they raise their hand. Now, the first couple times you do this, you will ring that tone and you'll have kids, boom, their hand goes up right away. <laughs> and it's like they've forgotten what they're supposed to do or, or you'll have kids that forget that they're even supposed to raise their hand after the sound stops. But you see the progression uh, over the course of a few days, a few weeks, their attention um, improves. And just 30 seconds of this actually is enough to start to improve that, that skill of attention. So that's how we start. And then we introduce breathing practices then we introduce some movement practices. Um, we explain to them the stress response in the brain in a developmentally appropriate way. So um, we explain to them, I talk specifically about parts of the brain like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and what happens when, you know, someone says they're not going to share or when you suddenly realize you have a quiz that you didn't know you were going to have. And and we're very clear and that that resonates with them. They pick up on the, the stress response in the brain part of it very quickly. And often they'll go home. I've had a parent tell me that, oh, I was I was trying to hang the blinds and I was getting really frustrated and my seven-year-old came in and said mom your amygdala is on fire <laughs> she said what are you talking about and so they pick up on that language um 
but you just kind of trickle it in bit by bit in developmentally appropriate ways. And uh, it's pretty amazing what it can do for them. Yeah. Okay. I have a few questions related to that. First of all, with the um, amygdala's response in mind, how do you feel about pop quizzes? <laughs> I'm not a fan. Not a fan. And I don't think that, I, you know, I would like, I hope that that is not a um, common practice as much as it was when I was, was growing up. But uh, I do use that as an example. But I think more often it's that, oh, I have a quiz and I forgot about it and I didn't study, you know, than the pop quiz. Yeah. Well, I honestly feel like my mental health suffered a lot because I was always in a stressed out state at school because I didn't know if a pop quiz was coming. Like there were were certain classes where I felt like I couldn't even learn because I couldn't focus because I was so scared every day I was going to get a pop quiz. Right. And so that fear, that anxiety does what? It triggers your limbic system, your fight, flight, or freeze response. And when that's triggered, you can't use your prefrontal cortex, which is where all that information for the pop quiz is stored. Mm -hmm. So it completely makes sense that you, you didn't do well on the pop quiz or you had anxiety around it because when that kind of anxiety is triggered, we can't learn effectively. We can't perform effectively. We have to be able to bring our prefrontal cortex back online so we can perform our best. Yes. Okay. And then what is the importance of the movement side of the equation? Because you mentioned that there's this movement you teach them. Yeah. And for me, that's just getting kids moving when they've been sitting at a desk, you know, more hours than they should be with less recess time than they need and deserve. Then it's an opportunity to, um, you know, to practice mindful movement. So rather than just having them sit and breathe, I have them get up and do different uh, mindful movement exercises. So one of them is called a Sundance Um it, it looks a little bit like a, a sun salutation in yoga, but it's not a sun salutation in yoga. Um, and it's just a movement that they go through that combines their inhalations and exhalations and also gets their blood flowing. Um, that blood flow and that increased heart rate, especially when they do this quickly, uh, releases serotonin, which is also good for learning uh, in their brains. And uh, we, you know, we know kids need to move and they're not moving as much as they used to. So I, it was very important for me to have that be a key component of this mindfulness program. And I think it is one of the things that distinguishes our mindfulness program from a lot of the other programs that are out there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, also, isn't there science behind just, well, I guess because you just explained the prefrontal cortex. Like I feel like I memorize things better when I'm walking. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, most of my kind of aha creative moments happen when I'm on a mountain bike ride. Mm. (laughs) So I think it's recognizing that for, you know, we all learn differently. And I, I really believe that that physical movement can be an effective way to integrate what kids are learning, um, to inspire creativity for there's so many great brain benefits to movement and exercise. Yeah. So, I am curious if, so someone's listening and maybe they're a teacher or they're a parent and they want to introduce these concepts to the kids and they don't mm-hmm. have a, what is it called? A tone bar? Um, yes. 
and they don't have one of those, do you have any suggestions as to how to introduce this to a child? Sure. Um, well, there, there's tons of resources on my Mindful Life Today website, both for parents and for teachers. Um, you know, the book has a ton of different exercises. There's a whole chapter on different activities for families. And then there's the school's program has a ton of different exercises as well. Uh, but you also, you don't have to have like props or a vibratone to practice mindful listening. Another way to do it is just have kids sit in a circle um, again, ask them to close their eyes or look at down in front of them and ask them to listen for the farthest sound they can hear. Mm. And do that for 30 seconds, for 20 seconds, depending on, you know, the attention of your of the kids in your class. And in schools, there's tons of noises going on all over the place. And so sometimes I'll say, okay, let's listen for the farthest thing we can hear. You know, what's the farthest away sound you can hear? And then I'll have them share that. And then we'll do it again and say, okay, listen to sounds inside this room. What, listen to sounds close to you. Then listen to the sound of your own breath. Can you bring your awareness to your own breath? So kind of going from the outside in mm -hmm. um, can be a great way to practice mindful listening in your transitions from one classroom to a specials class to a PE or to music as you're walking through the hallway is a great time to practice mindful listening um, out in a park or during recess can be a great time to practice mindful listening. So there's lots of different ways you can do it without any props okay. uh, or you don't necessarily need anything. But I think what the, what the program and the books give you are lots of different ideas for ways to do it. Yeah. I, I just think it's so amazing that this is being implemented at certain schools at such a young age. Like I, I have a lot of clients who are in college and mm -hmm. actually just this morning I was talking to someone and she was telling me like, I just can't focus in class. She's like, my mind just wanders. It's, it's been an ongoing problem forever. Like mm. I can't, I can't be present. Like, what do I do? And I think about when I was in college and I had the same issue. I just learned to yeah. accept that I was never going to be able to pay attention. I would just learn it when I got home, like in class, I could not, I could not pay attention. As right. hard as I tried, even I remember I would take notes and I didn't even know what I was writing. Oh, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. That's why I didn't even go to class because I felt like it wasn't, you know, there were certain teachers that um, that could capture me and that I could pay attention to. But I did the same thing. There were classes I realized pretty quickly in college that I was better off spending the time, you know, highlighting and taking notes and memorizing for the for the test or the mm -hmm. midterm than spending that time sitting in class listening to a lecture because I was lost in thought the entire time. Yeah. So, and I do think that these are, are tools that can really help with that, um, help us recognize when we are distracted and help us bring ourselves back. Uh, you know, another practice, I call it a three breath micro practice, um, but it's, you take three breaths. The first breath is you just inhale, exhale, relax. The second breath, you inhale, and as you exhale, you just notice, um, bring your awareness to areas of tension in your body and try to release them in your exhale. And then the third breath is to inhale and ask yourself, what is most important right now? 
And it's just a way to kind of bring you back wherever you are, whether you're sitting in a meeting, whether you are in a conversation, um, whether you are trying to get something done at work, uh, just a way to kind of use the breath again to stimulate that part of your brain that's going to help you be focused. Yeah. Do you, do you teach that um, like in corporate spaces as well? What do you teach when, oh, you, yeah. when you're working, you know, at corporate spaces? So in corporate spaces, we teach the kind of a formal practice in a simple way, a three to five minute practice. We teach how to, um, you know, use mindfulness in moments uh, where in difficult situations, whether that's a work conversation, whether it's a difficult email you received, whether it's you're feeling overwhelmed and anxious. Um, We talk about how to create a more positive, healthy work climate through increasing optimism and happiness and positivity in the workplace. Um, And we talk a lot about these little micro practices that you can integrate throughout the day in terms of how you start meetings, um, when you send emails, what the expectations around email and email response times are. So all those kinds of things that can build up and uh, take away from efficiency and productivity, um, as well as employee wellness are, are things that we address in our mindfulness and the workplace course. Yeah, I mean, when you just say emails, I have to, I have to box breathe immediately. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think that everyone would benefit from this so much. And I think about so I focus, I work mostly with people who have chronic illness. And mm-hmm. so many of them are just trapped in the freeze response. And like, that is what triggered their yes. illness, and is keeping them in that state of chronic illness, right. And it's like, getting how do we get someone out of the freeze response because we've we've passed fight or flight like we're in freeze and people are stuck there and they just don't they don't they they don't even realize it and they don't know how to get out you know a hundred percent and that's what I did leave out of my background story at the beginning um of the interview is when I was um, back in 2005, I was finishing my doctorate degree studying the neurology of stress. I was I had a toddler. I was pregnant with my second child. I had a full-time job. I was trying to finish my dissertation before the next child was born. I was remodeling my house. <laughs> and I right after my son was born, my second child was born, I was diagnosed um, with an autoimmune disease that was likely triggered by stress. Mm. And here I was, like, this is what I was studying. And this is what happened to me. And I, after I, you know, I had to go on medication and I was on medication for about three to five years. Um, But I will tell you that it's these practices and everything I've learned through this business and, and kind of going through this and raising my kids and, and my own personal journey with these practices that now have me off all my, all of those medications and feeling healthy and good. And it's a real thing. Um, you know, our, that the stress and those emotions can trigger all kinds of immune issues and chronic illnesses and can make us physically sick, but we can also, there's also a lot we can do to heal ourselves and to keep ourselves well as well. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And I think what people don't realize is, you know, for me working with clients, it takes a second for them to understand because they'll ask about their stress levels and they'll often say, I'm not that, I'm not stressed, you know, just like normal things. I don't really feel stressed. It's because they're 
what they consider to be normal stress is at such a high level, like they're literally just in freeze. So that's normal to them. And they don't realize like being stuck there is what's keeping them sick. You know, so I feel like our tolerance kind of adjusts. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So something else, just because you mentioned earlier mirror neurons, can you talk a little bit more about those? Sure. So um, mirror neurons are, there are neurons in our brains and they're the reason why when, you know, when you hold an infant and you smile at them, the infant smiles back at you. And it's because when we look at someone, we not only kind of recognize that facial code and understand how they're feeling, but the area inside our own brain responsible for that same emotion lights up as well. So the problem is that they these neurons don't only light up in response to positive emotions like smiling at infants, but that also means we pick up on um, the stress around us. And this is particularly true, I think, in the parent-child relationship, that even when parents aren't talking about their stress, kids pick up on it and they feel it. And also in the classroom, you know, that teacher-student relationship and, and in partner relationships, you know, when you're around certain people that kind of have a lot of negative energy and carry around a lot of negative emotions, it's hard not to let that sink in. Um, but the good news with that is when we can kind of cultivate those positive emotions in ourselves first, that can be what catches and we can spread those kinds of emotions to the people around us as well. Uh, but they're a very real thing. And when we look at functional MRI scans and you put different images of different facial expressions in front of people, you see different areas of their brain light up. Mm. Um, so that's it's incredibly powerful and um, and something that I, I think is particularly important for leaders, yeah. um, you know, leaders of businesses, leaders of teams, managers. It's important for coaches, it's important for teachers, it's important for parents, um, anybody in kind of that, that role that people are looking to, um, for, to feel safe, secure, and um, to look to for support. Yeah, I mean, just another reason why you should pay close attention to who you surround yourself with, right? Like, if you're trying to de-stress and like be calm during the day and do your breathing practices and everyone around you is super stressed out and negative. Yeah. (laughs) That's not going to help. Is this also why if I binge watch a stressful TV show, I feel like I'm in the show and I'm so stressed. Yes. Yes. This is why you should not watch Breaking Bad before bed. You can watch it any other time. No, I do. It is. Yeah. Like it is why taking in, um, yeah, certain kinds of shows like that can, can really stimulate and activate you and make it difficult to fall asleep. So if I'm watching something before I fall asleep, I try to make it something like The Office or Parks and Rec or Friends. You know, something that is just going, not going to stimulate you in that way. <laughs> yeah, well, I notice even just like if I'm watching a show and I'm, I'm watching, let's say I watch a couple episodes a day, it's like my whole day I'm super stressed out if it's a stressful show and I'm like living my life as if I'm a character in that show. And I, I'm like, why am I so stressed out and angry at people? Or like, why am I scheming right now? Because I'm watching a show where other people are scheming. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you know, especially like with the news, yeah. that's a big trigger that people don't realize is that has a, a really negative impact on us when we watch, take in a lot of ton of negative news over the course of the day. Do you watch the news? I don't, I don't watch the news. I try to be very strategic in my online resources for news. Mm -hmm. Um, I stopped that years ago because I realized what an impact it had on me. And uh, my parents think I'm crazy. How can you not watch the news? You know, they've got news on for three hours in the morning and two hours every night. And when I go to their house, I just... I'm activated right when I walk in the door, but I try to stay um, knowledgeable uh, on what I need to stay knowledgeable on um, and about and and not much more than that. Yeah, I can't watch the news either. And same thing with my mom. And she's probably the most stressed out person I have ever met in my life. She runs at a million miles a minute. Um, And she watches the news for two hours in the morning and two hours before sleep. (laughs) Yeah. There was just a study that said when people watch three minutes of negative news in the morning, at the end of the day, they're 27% more likely to report having had a bad day. Oh my gosh. I believe it 100%. So it's a real thing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So this leads me into what I wanted to kind of wrap up with, which is talking about media and technology. Um, I feel like this is such a hindrance to our ability to be mindful nowadays, especially as we were talking before, younger generations um, Mm -hmm. who are just attached to their phone. And I feel like it's so hard for people to go on any type of digital detox. It's really difficult. And, you know, the, the technology isn't going away by any means. So we need to learn how to manage it rather than having it manage us all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, a, you know, I'm, I'm very rigid and I'm probably back in the dark ages in terms of how much I manage my technology because I know how much it impacts me. But I think just looking for an easy place to start is thinking about windows that you can just give your brain a break from that. So as an example, you know, if you drive your kids to school, can you can you leave your phone, if not at home, in the glove box while you drive your kids to school? Uh, when you come home from work, can you put your phone and computer away for the 60 minutes from the time you walk in the door? Um, can you take that 60 minutes as a break from all technology? Can you create a digital sunset for yourself? So that you're shutting down your devices, your notifications, all those kinds of things, you know, 30, 60 minutes before you go to sleep at night. So, you know, do what is doable. You know, how can you start um, with these little windows of breaks from technology? Because our brain needs that time to um, to restore, to rest, to not be on constant alert for the next ping or ding that's going to come across. And even when we're not using our phone, when it's within eyesight, our brain is still aware that it's there and it's still kind of scanning for those pings and dings. So it's actually putting it out of sight, turning it off, um, turning off those notifications and and looking for ways to carve out that downtime, both for you and for your family. Yeah, I think it's pretty incredible how much it affects your brain space, so to speak. So I will do a social media detox 
I usually do a week social media detox, like once every couple months, and I mm-hmm. try and get like my whole community to do it. Um, and during those weeks, like I still, I usually get so much work done. Like I, I can incredible an incredible amount of projects get completed, and I am so focused. And it's not even because I spend that much time on social media every day. It's just because it's like completely not even an option. So my brain is just so right able to focus it's it's so bizarre right yeah and it is it's it's the um you know it's those quick checks like here and there like oh i'm waiting in the grocery line i'll let me see what's on facebook or um you know i talk i i'm working for this integrative beauty line and one of the things we talk about is when you put your cleansing mask on Instead of going to your social media feed while you're waiting for it to dry, can you write down three to five things you're grateful for in your gratitude journal? Yeah. How much more is that going to serve you than seeing taking those two minutes to see what's on Facebook? And the reason is because when you're checking those things, that is stimulating that fight, flight, or freeze. We don't think it's stressful, but it, it our brain interprets it as stressful. So the reason why you, why you feel so focused during those detoxes is because your brain is having those natural breaks mm-hmm. and it's able to perform better because it's getting a little bit of downtime without those constant little checks throughout the day. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think an- another aspect of this is that it seems to be so much harder for some people than others to take a break from technology so for example like if I do a social media detox or a technology detox it's really interesting for me to see other people's reactions and how many people say oh yeah I'm gonna do it um and they're all excited and then they can't last a day because they're they're addicted right drug addict (laughs) right oh yeah completely addicted. Um, I know. I think sometime we're at some point in the future, we're probably going to see like digital rehab centers or something. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, is there science behind like how that compares to other types of addiction in terms of your brain? That's a good question. I don't know how it compares. It's similar in terms of there is a, a, a reward response from, you know, when we pick up, when we open an email, there's a part of us, a part of our brain that thinks, so this might be that new job or that new client or same with the text that that could be sent. That could be really good news. And we think that when we just respond to that email or respond to that text that we're checking something off our to-do list. Um, So it's addictive in that way and that our brain kind of sees it as a potential, there's a potential reward there. But the reward does not come in terms of um, enhancing how our brain functions. It actually is very taxing on our brain. But I don't know, you know, I don't know how it compares to sugar or to those kinds of things. But I think it's very clear that we become addicted to the constant, you know, checking. Um, And it's like the more you do it, the more addicting it becomes. So if we can start to just carve out little times and then we realize that the earth doesn't, you know, the world doesn't end when we don't respond to that text or email right away, you kind of start to notice the freedom. It's like, you know, if you've ever lost your phone and there's an initial panic of, oh my gosh, 
But then you go a day without your phone and it's kind of nice. It's like, wow, (laughs) there's a whole world out there that I can survive in without this thing constantly attached to me. And there's some benefits to that. Um, There's some freedom from that as well. Yeah, it is. It is like a huge weight gets lifted off your shoulders. Right. Uh, no one can be talking to you all day long. And like tying this back into corporate wellness, I feel like it affects productivity so much when people are workaholics and on their email all day, every day, like when there are not clear work hours and end hours. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that culture is becoming, it's kind of glamorized as like, let me work as hard as I can. But I I feel like this is affecting people in so many ways when they come home from work and it's still like, I need to be on my email, on my phone. My boss can contact me 24 hours a day. Um, do you ever see things like that in corporate wellness that need to be adjusted? I do. And I, and I think that pendulum is, sh- is shifting somewhat, that that no longer is that badge of honor that it used to be. Okay. In, in some, you know, there are some climates where it's sure that still is the way. It's like if you, you have to pay your dues, you have to do everything I did to climb the ladder. But I also see a lot of forward thinking companies that are realizing the cost of that on efficiency and productivity and employee wellness and the cost of sick days. And, and they are doing things like they are implementing policies of no email Saturdays. You cannot send an email to somebody else in your company on a Saturday. That's the policy. And so it's kind of forcing people to let go or mandatory vacation time. You have to take this time off. Um, and so that's what we're seeing because these companies are, are really starting to recognize the cost of burnt out employees. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of this new, oh, I don't know if it's new. It's, it was new to me when I first heard about like unlimited PTO trend. The, I don't know what that is. The unlimited I, PTO I've trend. heard more and more companies doing this like unlimited PTO and it's like this mind game, like. You can take as many days off that you want, but instead, like, so there's no amount that you get. So people, like, feel guilty to take any off. So they just don't. That's interesting. (laughs) That's really interesting. I mean, I've heard, yeah, of their companies that it's, you know, you work until you get the work done and then you you can leave. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of an interesting reverse psychology of it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know how that's working out for them, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, and I do think there are people who feel like they, you know, they have to be the first one there, the last one to leave. They, that's how they're going to get to where they want to be. Um, but I, I do think that the real um, kind of cutting edge forward thinking companies are, are looking differently about how they want to grow leadership mm-hmm. and how they want employees to develop. And they want them there for the long haul. And they see what happens, uh, you know, when we come in in our 20s and our early 30s and work like that. And then by, you know, 37, 38, 40 they're done or they're doing something else or they're sick or they, you know, they can't, they can't keep it up for the long haul. So they're, they're starting to take steps to prevent that from happening. Yeah. And I mean, even just like hearing what you do, um, I I think about the school, the company has to, has to be so forward thinking to want to implement this, you know, it's like pretty incredible because I feel like so many, so many companies, schools would be so resistant. So it gives me a lot of hope that people are actually taking these steps. 
Yeah, and I have to say that that just in the in the last twelve years of doing this work, there's been a huge shift in how people look at these practices and these skills and these programs for their employees. And it used to, I used to feel like people looked at me like I was going to soak them in patchouli oil and hypnotize them or, (laughs) you know, draw them into some kind of cult when they heard what I was talking about. And now um, I'm definitely seeing a a recognition of the, the cost and the impact of stress and the the clear benefits of these types of programs for their employees. Yeah. It's like, I'm not trying to drown you in essential oils. I just want you to breathe. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. Just a little brain exercise here. That's all we're asking for. Yeah, no, I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge. I think that everyone's going to hear this and say, okay, I need to start focusing on my breath for three minutes a day. Um, I really hope, Yeah, they will. I really appreciate you taking the time. So for anyone who wants to get in touch with you, learn more from you, where can they find more from you? So they can learn more at mindfullifetoday.com. I also have a personal website for speaking engagements and my online coaching. That's kristenrace.com. And then they can learn more about Solvasa at solvasalife.com. There's great um, blog and all kinds of lifestyle information around integrative beauty. Uh, so lots of places to go for more information. Amazing. Thank you again so much. I had so much fun chatting with you. Yeah, it was great. Really nice to talk to you as well. Huge thank you to Dr. Kristen Race for coming on the podcast and talking about all things mindfulness. If you want more from her, just head on over to kristenrace.com or mindfullifetoday.com. And you can also find her on Instagram at Dr. Kristen Race. And if you enjoyed this show, make sure you share it with everyone you know and love. If you share it on social media, it means the world to me. Make sure you tag me tag wellness realness podcast and tag dr kristen race so she knows you love the content as well if you want more behind the scenes and my unfiltered thoughts about random things then dm your itunes rating and review to wellness realness crew on instagram and you can request to follow our super secret instagram page to get exclusive content from me back there just dm your iTunes rating and review, and I will accept your follow request. That's going to be it for today's episode. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and I'll talk with you again next time. Bye.